Good morning. It is a pleasure to be opening God's Word with you this morning. And I would like to actually start by echoing Duncan's commendations of Katie and the team up in Newcastle. That's not the page I wanted to be on. Um, up in Newcastle of all the work they've been doing at Planting the River Church. We went through a pandemic and it was very difficult. We had to change what we did quite significantly. And I can't imagine how much harder it would be doing that right at the start of planting your church. But I believe that God does something special when we go through hard work, when we go through labor together, a topic that actually features in my message this morning. Not planned, just, just conveniently. So I want to I commend Katie and the team up in Newcastle. I look forward to visiting you at some point. Now, the passage we're looking at this morning is a slightly awkward one for a few reasons. As Duncan said, we're moving towards the end of the book of Philippians, and this is actually the start of the final chapter. Now, because of where it's placed, it's, quite, it's a little bit unclear at first what its purpose within the letter is. It seems to follow on very much from the end of the last chapter that Jemima was sharing on last week, but then it seems to have this, this short passage which doesn't necessarily obviously fit where it is, and it's un, so, some people sort of put it in with the previous chapter, some people put it in with what's to come, and some people sort of have it as its own thing, as if Paul sort of like wanted to say this, but wasn't quite sure where in his letter to say it. It's also awkward because Paul does something which as 21st century British people we would find unthinkable. He calls out two people within the church by name, and he challenges them, them on something. So in Paul's example, I'm going to don't worry, <laughs> I'm not going to. But in that moment, how would you have felt if I called you out? How would you have responded to that challenge? Bearing in mind, this letter would have been read publicly to the church. It would have been awkward. So I want, when we get to that part of this passage, I want you to think, how would they have felt? How would the church around them have felt? And a third reason why it's a little bit awkward is there's a few names in here and based on my research, no one really knows how they're supposed to be pronounced. So I'm, the, the, the main one is what I'm going with as syntyche, and I've decided that that's, what, that's what's right, so that's what we're going with. You may hear things from other preachers, but, but syntyche today. So we're at the start of uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and the words are going to come up. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And I want to start this message by drilling into that, that opening passage of this, of this paragraph, the one that seems to very closely link to the previous passage. In fact, it starts with a therefore. And when we see a therefore, we need to ask, what is it? Therefore. Thank you. So Jemima preached on the previous passage last week, and I don't want to just rehash her message. Um, but you can go and listen to it. It was brilliant. Um, but what... Paul, the place that Paul has come to through that, that passage is looking at the things of heaven, of striving on, of, of pressing onward 
to God's promises. And what I think Paul is trying to do is he is trying to fix our eyes on the things of heaven and the things that that implies, which is to have our eyes on on the eternity of God's plan. And I think that is the frame in which he is continuing. It's also worth noting in this opening section some of the language that Paul uses. Now, now Paul is one who is very fond of a warm greeting all the time, but there seems to be something particularly special about this. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Twice he refers to them as those he loves or his beloved. Now, I'm not saying Paul had a favorite church. Just as parents among you don't have a favorite child, and just as in my work with children, I don't have a favorite child that I work with, except we're human, and I'm not going to ask any of the parents to tell us who their favorite child is, but we can form particular attachments which are special and poignant. And I feel that Paul is trying to draw something out here before he goes into the next section. When we look at how Paul started the church in Philippians, it was a time of difficulty. They got to Philippi, and after being chased, after being beaten, Paul ended up in jail. And I imagine that was a very difficult time. And as we know, Paul himself is writing this letter from being imprisoned. So I wonder if that's come to the forefront of his mind and he wants to, to remind them of that. He wants to remind them of the work that they have gone through together so that as he moves on and he, he puts out this challenge, they know where it is coming from. They know it is coming from a place of love and support and that it is to help them see better the things of heaven that Paul is setting their eyes upon. He tells them to stand firm thus in the Lord. This initially seems like a bit of a change of pace from the last passage where he's telling people to press on in the Lord. And it raises the question, how do we press on but stand firm? Now here and throughout many of Paul's letters, he seems to use these two phrases somewhat interchangeably. And I think that's referring to the idea that in order to stand firm, we must press on. If we are not pressing on in the Lord, if we're not pressing on into God's promises, into the picture of heaven, into eternity, we're going to be slipping back. It's a little bit like, and I hope I'm not the only person who has this problem, when you try to read a really long book, and I, I often try to read a long book, and I get to a certain point, I'm like, you know, I think I need to take a little bit of a break, and I go, and I might read another book, or I might do something else, or it might be partway through a series, and you, you just get distracted, and you go somewhere else, and then you come back to it, and you start reading, and you start watching again, and you're like, Wait, who's that person? And who's that? And why, why are they upset with them? And we come back to it and we're not in practice. We're not in the swing of things. In a similar way, if we've not been pressing on with the Lord, if we've been trying to sort of stand still, then we're not in practice of, of coming to him, of being with him, of having our eyes fixed on heaven. And therefore, we've slipped back a little bit and we potentially let things slip into our life that aren't helpful to our relationship with God. We potentially opened up areas for, for the enemy to slip in and bring ways of worldly thinking into our lives. But Paul is saying the solution to this is keep pressing on. Keep pressing on and you will know 
that you can be assured in where you're at with the Lord. So this is the mindset that he wants to put the people of the church in Philippi in before he moves into this next passage. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now this raises up a couple of questions. First, who are Euodia and Syntyche? Second, what are they disagreeing about? Why does Paul need them to agree? Now, the passage and the wider reading does not make this particularly clear, which grants me license to speculate wildly, right? <laughs> I'm not going to speculate too wildly, but I think there are clues within this passage that can tell us what Paul wants us to understand about these women and their disagreement. First, it's worth pointing out, because some scholars in the past have said that this isn't necessarily two women. This, these are definitely two women. The, the grammar makes it very clear. And that isn't the main purpose of this passage. And there's something to be said about the wider context and egalitarianism of women in leadership. But it's very clear that Euodia and Syntyche are two prominent female leaders within the Church of Philippi. And as I said, I'm not going to go too far into that because that's not Paul's point here. But I didn't want to let that pass without, without raising it. They are people who would have been known within the church. Otherwise, there's no point dropping their names. And what are they disagreeing about? Well, we can sometimes approach a passage like this and think, well, Paul's, Paul's challenging, on them, challenging, challenging them on this. So it must be pretty serious. There must be some big disagreement. One of them must be wrong, because you can't have two people disagreeing and one of them not be wrong. Like, if I disagree with someone, I know they're wrong, right? Because... <laughs> If they're not wrong, then I'm wrong, and I don't want to be wrong. But I don't think that's what the disagreement is. Because in other, in other times when there's been a serious problem and when there's been people within the church who are clearly wrong and following things that are damaging, Paul's corrected them on, on it. Paul will correct their theology very, very sensitively, but very directly. He does not want the bad theology in the church. And he doesn't do that here. Instead, he's... He's asking them to agree, but he doesn't say how he wants them to agree. So it's a, bit, it's a bit more like, imagine you've got two worship leaders. Let's say we've got, we've got Jordan and we've got Nat leading worship together. Jordan wants to, this, isn't, this is hypothetical, I'm not calling them out. <laughs> Jordan wants to sing Amazing Grace. Nat wants to sing In Christ Alone. There is nothing wrong with either of these songs. However, if they both decide to press on and sing their song, irregardless, at the same time, it's not going to go very well. It's going to put everyone here in the awkward position of deciding which song they want to sing. And it's going to put Dylan in the difficult position of working out how to put different words on each screen. So we see that small disagreements without one being wrong can still lead to division within the church. And, it can, and when we think of something maybe a bit more serious, but still not where someone is wrong, we can see how it could divide a church very strongly. If two leaders of a home group have drastically different ideas about what they want their home group to look like, then they need to agree. Otherwise, it's going to fall apart and they're going to go their separate ways. And I think Paul very much doesn't want that to happen. Paul, in his ministry, was no stranger to disagreement. We know from some comments he's made in other letters and from the book of Acts that Paul 
at times disagreed with his fellow workers very strongly to the point where it led to people separating. In fact, one of those instances was a disagreement with Barnabas shortly before he planted this very church. So I think it's really important to Paul that they continue and that they do not divide. And clearly, based on Paul's previous actions, sometimes that division does need to happen so that people can, can pursue the work of the Lord that he's called them to. But this, uh, this letter makes it very clear that that's not what Paul wants. Paul wants them to find a different solution. And how they go about that, I think there is a bit of a clue in the, word, in the Greek word that is here translated to agree. Again, pronunciation is not my thing, but the word is phronine or phronein. And that is a Greek word related to acting wisely. So he's not necessarily asking them to agree in what they think, but he is asking them to proceed in a way and act in a way that unites them together and imparts wisdom to their relationship and to the wider church. But when we disagree, when we are very married to our views and we, we think what, what this, plan, this plan that I have, this is going to be the best one because it's my plan, it can be very difficult to see someone else's point of view and it can be very difficult to give up the, the things that we have that we feel so confident are from God. And so Paul doesn't leave them to it. He doesn't just say, you, you need to agree. He gives them guidance and he gives the wider church guidance. He says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, this you also, true companion, because he's speaking to a church, we could be forgiven for thinking this is you, plural. But the grammar doesn't, doesn't reflect that. The grammar is actually you, singular. It's as if he is writing this letter specifically to one person, which doesn't make sense when it's a wider church. Now, Based on this, I think Paul is familiar with something called the bystander effect. Now, if you don't know what that is, in November, I was in a meeting at work, and we were planning our Christmas party. It was surprisingly easy to work out a date and to put together a plan. We were going to go for pizza at Rudy's near our office and sale. We were then going to go into town and go to a karaoke bar. Now... I happened to be in the office that day, and everyone else was working from home, so I said, okay, on my lunch break, I will go to Rudy's, and I will book a table for this date, at this time, for this many people. And then someone should do some research on some karaoke bars in town that we can go to, and someone should make a booking. One of these two things got done. <laughs> the other didn't. And I think it's pretty clear that I wouldn't forget to go to Rudy's and book the table for pizza. Rianne disagrees. But ultimately, when no one was taking responsibility, it was someone should do this. Someone should look at that. And everyone just thinks, oh, well, someone's, someone's got that. And Paul doesn't want that to happen. He wants someone to take responsibility for supporting these two women in coming to an agreement. And he's not, he's not necessarily giving this Job. There's not a person within the congregation who he's expecting to pick this up, but he wants someone to. And I imagine the people most likely to do that would be the people closest to them. 
the people who best understood their argument and what they, what they would need to do in order to progress together in wisdom. And so what, what does it look like when we can put those things aside? Well, Paul goes on to highlight that these two women have labored side by side with him in the gospel and with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers. So the reason Paul wants us to set aside disagreements, to progress wisely and united, is because that allows us to work together. Paul has been through massive trials with this church. We see earlier that he has formed a really strong bond. And I think he is, he is working on the fact that that strong bond he has with them, they will also have with one another. That the people supporting Euodia and Syntyche can, can support them wisely because they are coming from this same place of love and affection and respect that he opens up this passage with. And then Paul comes to the end of the passage and he sort of reflects onto something that paints the picture of what it looks like when they are able to do that. He says that they are, they are to press on with fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And by referencing the book of life, which is this spiritual, metaphorical book in which the names of everyone destined for the kingdom are written. A book that is referenced throughout the Old Testament and as far forward as Revelation, where it is seen in brilliant detail. Obviously, the people of Philippi wouldn't have had access to that, the book of Revelation, because it wasn't going to be written for about 30 years. However, Paul is, again, as he was at the end of chapter 3, setting their eyes on the eternal plan of God. He is saying that by co-laboring, by being united, they can see more and more of God's kingdom coming into their church. And they can better, as a church, reflect the kingdom that is to come. And there's another time when we see our names being written in heaven or written in the book of life in this way, which is back in the book of Luke, when Jesus has sent out his disciples. He sends out 72 of his disciples to go to the places that he himself will soon go. And he sends them out in twos, and they come back super excited. So we're going to pick that up in Luke 10, 17. And again, the words should be on the screen, so you don't necessarily need to flick there if you can't find it. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, that I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Paul is reflecting Jesus' words when he, he fixes their eyes on, on this fact. Jesus is saying that, yeah, this is all exciting. This work that you're doing is fantastically exciting and it's brilliant. 
but it's a reflection and it's a, a foretaste of the things to come, the things that we are promised because our names are written in the book of life. And it's hard to imagine just how much better, how much grander the kingdom to come is than our life and our, our picture of church here on earth. It was Whitaker Chambers who said that between man's purpose in time and God's purpose in eternity, there is an infinite difference in quality. We have so much more to come than we can possibly fathom. And Jesus and Paul want our church, want our lives here as Christians to look more and more like that. The book of life also links us to the church of Philippians in a way that otherwise we wouldn't be. We can sometimes read the Bible and think of the people in the Bible as looking and being very much like ourselves. I imagine most of the artwork you've seen of Paul, you've seen him as an old white man. This was not the case. The people of Philippi were very different to, to what we have, to the people we see modern day. This display of emotion from Paul is definitely not the words of a British man. There's definitely the, the Mediterranean flair, the passion and the emotion that he's putting into this that just wouldn't sit in present-day England. So we are being connected with the people of Philippi, just as the people of Philippi in this passage are being connected with, with God's people throughout the Old Testament. Bearing in mind, this is a church predominantly not of, of Jewish Christians, but of Gentile Christians who previously would not have considered their name to be in the book of life. This is a new thing for them. And God and Paul, through this, is connecting them to God's, the, the amazing history of God's people. And in the same way, he is connecting the people of Philippi to the church as it is to be, as it is to come throughout history, as we see it today. He also, through being written, our names, through our names being written in the book of life, it also casts an eye, our eye to what will our church look like? Not necessarily in heaven, but what will our church look like as we grow? Who is going to be part of our church that reflects the names written in the book of life? And I think sometimes we can have an idea of who is on our, in our book of life, who, what the sort of people we would like to invite to church, the sort of people we would like to invite to the Alpha course starting next month. But that's not always going to be the people that God wants to send us to. Because there may be Dave at work, who seems so uninterested whenever you mention anything about church. And it can be easy for us to, to maybe just discount Dave as someone who actually know that they're not a person who I want to be going and spreading the gospel to, or who I feel called to go and spread the gospel to. But who are we to say what God's plans are for Dave? And as a Christian in Dave's life, maybe that's your responsibility to, to share the word with him. And it may be someone who you have genuine anger towards and justified anger. But throughout the gospel, we see God do amazing things with such broken people. We need only look at Paul, who wrote this letter. Before Paul encountered Jesus, he was responsible for the oppression and oversaw the killing of countless Christians in the early church. Something that I imagine his fellow workers after his conversion probably found very difficult to let go. Like, 
If I've been oppressed by someone, I'm going to find it very difficult to work alongside them. And I imagine that contributed, at least in some part, to the disagreements he had with people that caused them to go their separate ways. But Paul doesn't want that. Paul has seen his history. And he's seen what God can do in his life. And from that example, we can trust that God will do amazing things in the lives of people who we feel scared to approach. There are people who right now we would call liars and thieves and cheats and murderers whose names are written in the book of life and who we will stand shoulder to shoulder with worshiping God for eternity. So we want to see that start now. And if we want to see God's kingdom, and I'm coming towards the end if the band want to get ready. If we want to see God's kingdom reflected in our church, if we want to see the book of life reflected on a Sunday and in our Christian lives, we need to go to the places that we, that we need to go to places that God calls us to, and we don't necessarily get a say in what those places are. So if we want to see God's kingdom coming into our church, someone needs to go and share the gospel in the sports stadiums. Someone needs to go and share the gospel in the live music venues and the gigs. Someone needs to go and share the gospel with people playing board games and Dungeons and Dragons. And someone needs to go and share the gospel with the people and in the places that scare them. And by someone, I mean you. <laughs>